This is part two of Toby Mathis, and we are also going to be having the virtual mastermind in January 2021. Make sure you guys come out to that. And if you guys haven't had an onboarding call with me, please go and sign up for the Hui Do Pipeline Club at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. You'll be prompted to have your onboarding call. And I want to get to know every single one of you guys out there and see how we can help out get to financial freedom. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. So what if I have an asset, I did a cost segregation, I stripped out all the passive losses and I slide that asset into nonprofit. Do I have to give up those passive losses personally or how does that all? No, passive loss is in the year that it's earned. So the same way you can be a real estate professional in one year and a non-real estate professional, just a regular passive investor, is the same way those losses get locked on your return. There is something called disposition of the asset where you can unlock those losses and they become ordinary losses. So the one thing we would look at is whether that disposition would qualify if we transferred it to a nonprofit. The other reason that deal might be slightly different is that while there's no issues with putting in straight line depreciation property into a nonprofit as far as the value, when you put in property where you've accelerated the depreciation, that accelerated depreciation, just the five, seven and 15 year property gets subtracted from the fair market value. So if I bought a property for 500,000 and I wrote off 100,000 in year one, and then the property goes up to a million bucks and I transfer it into the nonprofit, I would take the $100,000 of accelerated depreciation and I would subtract it from the million. So I'd get a $900,000 deduction. You mentioned it earlier, but is it essentially you can load assets into the nonprofit just as long as it's not luxury or what about like class A office space? Is that that no, count? It still works as long as it's passive. What the nonprofit, the only thing the nonprofit worries about is when I have an asset, whether it's used for my charitable purpose. For example, I don't like private foundations where they're not doing anything. All they do is give money to other nonprofits. We, we, we've done them but I much prefer things that are actually doing stuff. And people don't realize how wide open that is. The example I give people that usually makes them go, huh, is Ikea. And Ikea is a nonprofit, always has been. The majority owner, the majority control is actually two different charities. And then the kids of Ingvar, the guy who set it up, still control about a third of the board. So they, nobody can get rid of that company and it pays very, almost no tax. I think it was, about 4%. <laughs> when you operate an ordinary business in a nonprofit, there's something called UBIT that you have to be worried about, unrelated business income tax. And if you're levering the asset, there's always the possibility of unrelated debt finance income. But it's a misnomer. We don't really worry about it because there's still depreciation that we get to use against it. So even if it did make that, you're probably going to be paying it to somebody anyway, like you're going to be paying it out as a salary or another expense. Like you're not more than likely, you're not going to get hit by anything. If you did, you pay a little tax on it, but the charity pays it. And I'm assuming like from an asset protection standpoint, you're pretty solid there. Yeah. You, nobody could ever take it away from you. That's the thing. Nobody owns it. It's for the public benefit. You control it. 
So if you run over a busload of nuns and you get sued, the lightning sued out of you, they, they can't touch it. They could take your, if you start paying yourself out of salary, they could garnish some of those wages. But even that's limited. I think they're 25% of a wage. So it's not like they could just go in there and just they can't touch the asset. Usually what people would do in that scenario is that they pay somebody else, you know, a spouse or a child. It just takes the bull, the bullseye off your forehead. When If you have a lot of assets and you're walking around with them in your name, I just say you're tempting fate there. Somebody's yeah. going to decide they're going to make their bones on trying to take your stuff. So you, do you like the strategy in lieu of or in conjunction with something like a Nevada Dynasty Trust or like a, a, a yeah. domestic asset trust or irrevocable trust? Like you know, there's, there's, everybody's got their different little what they think is best, but what, what is your kind of thoughts on how this all works? Those are all tools in your toolbox and you use what's appropriate at the time and you try not to, to overthink it. The uh, Nevada Asset Protection Trust, all that is a trust that can last 365 years, can decant into another one and keep going on. It just means we're getting it out of our estate. I don't own it anymore. When, while I'm alive, technically, somebody can't take it from me. So they're an asset protection tool. And, and all living trusts end up becoming, if you draft them right, dynasty trusts anyway. You know, unless you want to give all your stuff to your kids right away, which I would say don't do that. My experience is that you're better off having it sit in trust for their benefit during their lifetime and then going to another generation. And you can have them go for a long period of time and you can pick whatever state you want. So Nevada is the number one state for asset protection trust. The reason being is A, they last a long period of time, 365 years. You can make that go longer. But also if, if you have a creditor of a beneficiary, all creditors are protected, whether it's child support, alimony, personal injury, there's no exceptions and most states have exceptions. So Nevada does not. So we tend to put the situs of our trusts in Nevada for that reason. So that's why you, you hear Nevada Asset Protection Trust, it's a fancy way of saying credit shelter trust set up in Nevada. Good stuff, good stuff. I think we'll talk, probably bring you to the mastermind and probably talk more specifics with the folks there in the future date. If you've been following my journey, I've been selling my initial real property and transitioning into syndication deals lately for a more purely passive investment strategy. One critical part of my portfolio is the American Home Preservation Fund, or what folks in the Hui call AHP for short. George Newberry, once apartment owner, operator, and mentor to me, is now sponsoring the podcast. His private fund, which by the way also accepts non-accredited investors, cuts the middlemen out and allows you to invest directly with him to fight the mortgage crisis in America. Join him by purchasing distressed mortgages while getting a double-digit annual return paid monthly. Find something else better out there? Well, let me know. Feel good knowing that you are helping families stay in their home after buying their underwater note at a huge discount. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com slash investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. Let's get back to the crystal ball here. So the big thing is the $400,000 threshold. 
to me, if you're able to lower your AGI below 400 grand or even less, does it not even matter? You're just still in the 32% tax bracket. If you're over 400,000, you're in the 39.6 plus your state. So it's going to be painful. If you're below the 400,000, you're going to get deductions that's going to come back. So that may help some people out. Your uh, state and local taxes, you'd be at a write-off. Right now it's capped at 10,000. So for some people, it, it might actually be better. We always look at what's bad about it, but what's good about it is if you make four, less than 400 grand, you're in a protected class. If you make over a million bucks, you're completely, you're on the endangered species list. You got to do something. You got to survive somehow. There are some ridiculous ways, by the way, to lower your income. You're doing one lane, you're a real estate professional. That's not available to everybody. There are things called defined benefit plans that have become more and more powerful over the years with savvy advisors where you're able to put, in some cases, upwards of a million dollars a year tax deferred. There's other vehicles if you want to get there. And it's just recognizing that which category you're in. If you're making 200 grand or in below, you're okay. You're, there's some things you can still do to lower your taxes. Absolutely. There's still some things you can do to make sure that you're taking advantage of, of opportunities that are available to you to, to minimize your tax. But you're not, you don't have the bullseye on your forehead. You're making 1.5, 1.6 million a year. You've got a bullseye on you, both for asset protection by the government. They want to take a big chunk out of that. And there's some things we can do to lower that so that you're not sitting there feeling like you're just a pinata getting hit and all the candles. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe not, for example, like land conservation easements. Not really, let's not really get into whether that's it's going away or and right now it's being fought around a little bit, but what's, what do you think with the new administration, new things might be coming? I think that would actually become a greater incentive lane. And, and I would, the only thing that I would say is the administration right now is looking at it saying that there's been abuse in the conservation area where they're overvaluing the conservation easement itself. So it's something called a listed transaction. If you go over 250% of your investment and in English, it means if I give a dollar, and I get a deduction of more than $5, they're gonna look at the transaction. That's all. They're gonna make sure that it's legitimate because there's people out there pitching 15 and 20 times. Yeah, those are the boneheads, right? Taking advantage of this. There's no way that the value's holding up. So like I, we have one right now that, we, that we've been looking at and these are legitimate. So it's a developer. Developer is developing a big chunk of Vale, uh, Colorado. So they have an area that they're willing to conserve. What it does to their other developments is makes that land more valuable. So they're willing to put restrictions on an area that's already been approved for the development. All the plans are up. Like you literally, they built sections of it. And they said, this land is worth $40 million with the developments, 42.9 or whatever. But it's, we bought it for 9 million. So we'll give away all the development rights and they get a deduction for it. And what, it's, what it is, they say, here's an area that would be perfect if it was never altered. And it's where two rivers come together, it's a valley. That's gonna make everything else. The whole area is gonna be better off. So there's about $30 million of deduction. So if you put in a dollar, let's say you were one of the 9 million, then you, and you're getting a deduction worth 
in this particular case, it ends up being worth about $4.7 for every dollar. So you're gonna to get to write off, you're gonna have a charitable deduction of $4.7 for every dollar you put in. What's that $4.7 .4 worth? It depends on your tax bracket. If you're in the 20% tax bracket, it's gonna be 20% of 4.7 is what it's worth. And it's, what is that? Like a dollar four, whatever it is. Let's see if I can actually do math in my head. A uh, dollar 40 something around there a buck it's you paid a dollar to get just over a dollar you're probably not doing that for tax purposes you're in the highest tax bracket it's probably worth it it's probably gonna hey you know what i get a you know a buck 60 a buck 70 for every dollar i put in i'm saving a dollar 70. okay that's worth it saving an extra 60 cents and that's conservation stuff and biden has shown that he wants more solar and he wants more conservation. So I would say that the opposite is gonna hold true on that area that you could actually see more incentives. And there's a crazier one, Lane, that you and I have never spoken of, which is the solar credits that are still floating around out there for business use. For example, what's gonna become a big incentive, and I can almost tell you that this is gonna be a reality. So I'm gonna get my crystal ball out and say, you're gonna watch this. And then we're gonna to listen to this in three or four years and say, we were predicting it. Right now, if I put a solar array on a building, and let's say it costs me a million dollars, I get a tax credit of $260,000, 26%. Even if I finance the whole thing. That's a credit. I get a credit, that's not a deduction, that's a dollar for dollar credit. So if I owe $100,000 of taxes and I have a $270,000 tax credit, I don't pay any tax that year. I use a hundred thousand of it and I carry it forward in the future years. But I also get to depreciate the solar array and I depreciate 87% of it. So a million bucks, I'm gonna get an $870,000 deduction in year one, plus a $260,000 tax credit. It's not bad. So it's, there's, and I think they're gonna increase those incentives. It used to be 30, 30% and then this year it went down, next year it goes to 22%. So that solar panel, you can deduct it all in the first year? You can deduct 87% of it and you get a tax credit for 26% uh, of it. So maybe I should go around Hawaii and find a contractor and make some deals with some people, put some solar panels and just sell off the credits to investors. Uh, you're Is that a thing? You're already there. Yep, that's exactly what they're doing. So I have a client, that's what he does. He, he, he installs solar, but it, it gets interesting. What he does is he goes to uh, utilities, public exempt organizations, 501c3s, churches, and he'll go find a wealthy parishioner and say, hey, would you, would you put the solar array on and then do a five-year contract on the energy because it's going to be energy independent. And so they'll sell it to the charity and say, hey, after five years, the, the array is yours. And so he's taken the big tax credit. They have a little tiny bit of income on the, on the revenue that's coming in because they're technically, they're selling them the electricity. Although usually they just give it right to the charity. So that washes itself, there's a deduction. And then, so you have a little bit of income with a deduction that equals it, but you get that first year, it's a ridiculous deduction. Where that's really going to be important, Lane, is next year. If, if the taxes do increase, guess who's going to be really incentivized to do stuff like that? 
Yeah. That'd be cool. Like investors bring in the capital, they get the tax incentives and the landowner gets get some cheaper energy. Yeah, what, what they do is they lock it in and they'll say your energy won't go up for five years and then you have the right to buy it at some peppercorn price. So you, you've already depreciated it, so you don't really care. You just don't want to have a, you, you would recognize all the income as ordinary income if you sold it for more, more than your basis. So you have a really tiny basis. So that's what you sell it to them for. You're like, hey, 13% basis, whatever that is. So it's, I just want to not pay anything. Yeah. So during the, during those five years, I have a little bit of energy money coming in and I have a payment on the loan on the solar, but it's basically washing itself. So I, again, I'm getting a huge tax credit. I get a huge deduction. I have very little income that's coming in off of it. So I'm getting a big first year benefit. And yes, there's a lot of people starting to do those now. And I think that creative syndicators are going to get into that arena. And then going back to the land conservation easement, I think you know, Democrats are typically more on the environmental side. So I think that will continue to be open. But I, what I'm looking for is them to create some kind of safe harbor instead of us speculating back and forth, that they just make it more black and white. So Mr. It, I need to file it, in April doesn't get all freaked out. But they did. They did make a safe harbor. It's 250%. Okay. And they made everybody list it. So they, so the, it's the syndicator that gets audited in those situations, not the individual. So usually what they're doing is they're trying to figure out who these promoters are and whether they actually gave away the, the interest. And so what oftentimes will happen is somebody's thinking, I'll pretend to give away something and it'll revert back to me in 20 years. So I'll get a deduction, but it has to be a complete gift in perpetuity. Somebody who, who doesn't, obviously that's a syndicator who's running fast and loose and not, doesn't hire competent professionals to look at the, the situation and say, hey, you actually have to gift away. And I'll use the example of our president right now, Trump. Mar-a-Lago is a good example. I think it's six parcels, Mar-a-Lago, the golf course. And he gave away the development rights. I think it was on two or three of them, but also the clubhouse. And so there's a bunch of cultural antiques in the clubhouse. They have to have a nonprofit gala every year so people can see it. But on the parcels that had the golf course, he gave away the development rights to an outside conservation party. And the reason that you do that is so that nobody's tempted to sell the golf course and build a bunch of houses on it. It does a couple of things. A, that will always be open space. It'll never be developed. They're not going to build buildings on it. They're not going to put houses on it. Number two is if there are houses on a golf course, you want to know that they're not going to sell the golf course. And all of a sudden your house that's on the fairway on the ninth hole is all of a sudden in a very dense pack of houses that are on postage stamps. That just happened in a community that's literally about a mile away from me here called Queens Ridge where they sold the golf course and they're going to develop it. And it's a lawsuit in the making. That's where Snoop Dogg lived, by the way. It was in uh, Queens, Queensbury, I think it was one of the condos that's in there, but it's like a super high-end area of Summerlin. And uh, yeah, the golf course wasn't profitable. So the guy just let it go brown and selling it to a developer. And so all these people that lived on the golf course, all of a sudden they're on a brown golf course. That's going to, now they're going to have neighbors in their backyard. And they thought they were going to be living on a golf course. So there is some benefit to it of saying, hey, I have a golf course. Worst case scenario, it's going to be open area. 
and you guys can decide. Maybe it won't be a golf course someday, but it'll be open green area. Maybe it'll be, maybe we'll plant a bunch of trees. And if you give it to like Ducks Unlimited, maybe it'll be a wildlife habitat that's in your backyard. So uh, (laughs) that's actually one that people give a lot of land to. But it's, that's that world. The people that live in that world, Lane, they're true believers. Like these are the folks that are like, hey, we need, we need these open spaces. Please don't put asphalt over everything, especially in Hawaii. I'd imagine you guys would have an appetite for that. So wrapping things up, the last thing I wanted to go over was the is the, the corporate tax rate going from 21 to more of a 28. So you guys finally got me on a C-Corp system after it takes me a long time to figure these things out. And I don't have a home office. I have an administrative office. Because You're I have a C corp now, now I'm getting it. <laughs> I'm practicing. You, you'd be good. I'm practicing for that audit, but I'll probably have you guys talk to them. What the audit rate is? Ready. They just came out with the audit rates from uh, 2019. Your little uh, little companies, little S, little Cs, little partnerships were below 0.005. They didn't even register. It's first year I've seen an asterisk as the audit rate. S corps were 0.01. Uh, C-Corps are off the, when you're small, you're minuscule. The people that get audited are the individuals in big companies. Companies the LLC guys. The, yeah, the LLC sole proprietors, they still, they're about, it's still, what would it be about? Uh, 1,500% more likely to get audited right now. Yeah, it's not even close. And so I always chuckle because we just don't see audits here. We actually had seven years where we had zero audits of any of the companies that we set up and, and we do more than 6,000 returns a year. So like we should be seeing lots of audits because the audit rates are traditionally around a percent. It's been dropping. The IRS is understaffed, overworked, and they're focusing on the people that are actually bad doers. When you're a small company, it's really not much that they can get. If you have a lot of different options, you can't take it one way. You could probably deduct it in three other different ways. As an individual, you have really no options. And so they, when they audit sole proprietors, they win 94 to 95% of the time. It's a slam dunk. They win about 64% of the audits against companies, corporations. It's not even close. Like when you actually start doing math on it, you're like, oh man, who should I audit? I think I'll just audit sole proprietors all day long. Yeah, the mom and pause. Yeah, people are playing games when they're sole proprietors. They, you know. They're more apt to do stupid things. Like you're not yeah. allowed to a cell phone. I can't write off my cell phone in a sole proprietorship. I can or write just off go down the email list and say who has all the Yahoo or Gmail accounts, and let's go audit those guys. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> if I was the IRS, I would just audit them all. They actually they do have algorithms, and they were auditing all the earned income tax credit. So they were auditing all the poor people that were taking the earned income tax credit because none of them would respond, and they'd win every audit. It was the most disgusting thing I ever met. I talked to the programmer who said, I felt dirty after writing the algorithm. And it's stupid stuff like that. You're just looking at our government going, guys, I can tell you who the screwballs are. Like, we already know who they are. They're the ones doing everything cheap and fast. So that's why I do the C-Corp, guys. But with the taxes going up, Toby, is that, are we going to keep it C-Corp or we're going to change it S-Corp? What do we do? What's the plan here? Well, you always plan. do the calculation to see. So I, I can tell you the numbers. If you make over a million bucks and you have a C-Corp and the C-Corp 
makes its money, pays tax, pays it out to you, you're looking at an aggregate tax bracket of about 59%. That's going to be painful. So if you're a high income earner, it's going to hurt. For you, Lane, if we paid out the profits of the C-Corp, you're in the 0% tax bracket. Your long-term capital gains yeah. is, is the dividend rate. Well, what about like a lot of my clients, like they, the C-Corp to them or S-Corps are a little complicated to them. And they just think of themselves as lowly little passive investor, got a few deals. It still makes sense for yeah, them you, to do that. You just do the math. And so I'll, I'll use a stock trader as an example. We don't have miscellaneous atomized deductions. Stock traders, it's really hard for them to qualify as a business. There's something called trader status, which is not even in the code. It's just made up. It gets audited almost every time. Or you just use a corporation and you have it manage a partnership that has the brokerage account. And it sounds complicated, but what it does is it allows you to write off all your expenses that you otherwise wouldn't get. And so you just get a pencil out and you say, all right, how much are those expenses? In my experience, the average expense of an individual who's doing any sort of investing is between 20 and $25,000 a year. If I can write that off, I just look at your tax bracket and say, is it worth it? So if it's somebody who's in the 12% tax bracket and they don't really care, I look at it and say, it's going to put an extra, let's say $2,500 in your pocket. Is it worth it to do an extra tax return and deal with a little complexity? And their answer may be no. For somebody else, we may be looking at it and they go, well, yeah, that's going to save me about $10,000 a year. I need that extra money because it, it, you know, it takes me from making 7% to making 13%, you know, a year. That, that's a huge like, difference. Like they're in the 20 to 24% tax bracket. Exactly. And they start, all of a sudden it starts, those deductions start to mean something. I, I don't want to ever put my, my wallet in somebody else's back pocket. So I just do the calculation and say, here's what it means to you. Is it worth it? Technically it's the same bookkeeping, no matter what you do, you're required to keep books and records. So I always say that's a misnomer. What it really comes down to is the little complexity of running a corp. And yeah, maybe it's an extra hour or two a year that you have to deal with it. It's not, it's, you do syndications. It's not like it's earth shattering. It's not like it's a ton of stuff. You just, you have to keep track of your books, no matter what. That's the hardest part for anything is keeping track of the books. So all you're doing is you're still doing the bookkeeping. It's just, I have one other mouth over here that has its own tax bracket. And I like to feed that mouth because unlike me, it doesn't have to pay tax on some of those things. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, wrapping up here, Toby, any other thoughts and feelings or anything else in that crystal ball you want to predict? Yeah. Relax. I would say go slow. Don't make wild moves. Don't freak out. If we can't do things one way, we'll find some other way. It's rare that you have catastrophic tax changes. Usually they give us things. And so even in the biggest tax changes that we've had, whether it be the 86, whether it be 2003, uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, individual in uh, taxes actually went up. Business taxes went down, no matter what those are, which by the way, 199A is also on the chopping block, the 20% deduction. I would just look at it and say, talk to somebody who actually understands how these things work. What are the silver linings they're giving us? 
tax laws always have silver linings. And it's just, let's go find what they are and see if actually your situation benefited. It's weird, but like usually with, with a little bit of complexity, those that are willing to embrace it do better almost all the time. Because it's not like Biden wants to hammer people. What he wants to do is he wants to ha hammer the people that are just doing things mindlessly or don't have advisors. And so he sets up traps. And if he, it's like you're catching, I don't know, let's, let's say they're putting a bunch of hooks in the water and they're waiting to see who will come up and bite it. So yeah. don't bite it. Yeah, it's like that heads I win, tails I win, complexity helps because in the complexity you can find a path forward and stop complaining F try and find those ways to to get around the obstacles i just wish that trump hadn't used the carry back and hadn't used the accelerated depreciation and used the cost or the uh, conservation easements because they used it to hit him over the head when real realistically they should have been saying here's huge tax incentives that we want everybody to participate in we'd love to see more development We'd love to see more conservation. Instead, they said, oh, look at him. He's not paying any taxes. They should be paying. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, here's I the agree. poster child. Here's the guy that he saved millions of dollars on his taxes because there's incentives to do X, Y, Z, and he took advantage of those incentives. I was kind of like, shut up, you imbecile. Just yeah. why bring all this attention to this stuff, right? Yeah. But they didn't do it. Say, hey, Biden, you saved tens of thousands of dollars a year running your, your business as an escort. You never heard them say, there was one or two articles where they actually pointed out, hey, you set up a structure where you were able to reduce your old age disability and survivors benefits and Medicare payments. You saved yourself, I think it was like 150,000. It was a pretty large amount. And yeah, they didn't beat him over the head for it. Yeah. Thank God, because we want these things. There's incentives to do things the appropriate way. We want people to, we want charitable donations. We want conservation easements. We want development. We want people to want to build more housing because God knows we're going to need it. And the poor are being left behind everywhere. On your island, I know that there's people that could really use low-income housing. Why are they making it so hard? Give us incentives to do it and we'll take care of it. I actually think maybe with Biden and everything, maybe my taxes might go up 5% overall, but with all the money that they put into the economy and they spend money like drunken sailors, especially on the, the low income housing stuff. I think if you're like before they would put a bunch of housing in projects, right? Like yeah. they, they would densify all the low income stuff. Now the push is to spread it out to more suburban apartments here and there amongst nice houses in these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I see that as an opportunity for investors to go up like apartments or, I know you guys see that stuff too. It's huge. It's huge. I work with United Way, Catholic Charities, and, and a few nonprofits that work with terminally ill, autistic adults. There's no housing for these folks, Lane. Like, I, I don't want to go down that path right now, but it's serious. As in millions of folks are going to be in a really bad situations, There's almost a million autistic adults that are living with their parents. What happens when the parents pass away? These folks cannot live on their own. They're gonna need some sort of assistance. So there's gonna be that. The elder population, we're living longer and our older population is growing about 25% faster than, every, than in any other demographic. 
we're going to need to house people, but they're not going to be able to live on their own. We're going to just put them in nursing homes. That would be horrible. So we're going to have living arrangements that work there. And then there's the last 10 years of all the housing that's been built, about 75% has gone to people making more than $75,000 a year. So you have a section of society, especially the millennials that are being underserved. So uh, what they ought to do is create incentives for folks like you, folks like me who love real estate and like to develop, give incentives to solve that problem. And the accelerated depreciation is one, fixing the voucher system. Right now, not everybody wants to do HUD housing, but there's other systems for people, whether it be veterans, whether it be somebody who's got a short-term need or has a, a certain type of disease or, again, autistic or whatnot, where there's, there's groups that, that give incentives to people like you and I to help solve that issue by giving us tax incentives to do it. And, and that's the best thing they could do because the government sucks at those things. They're really bad. Anything else going on in Anderson you, you want to give a shout out to? You know what? Or- We've been uh, going gangbusters. We love working in the tax and asset protection and the estate uh, planning. What I would say is you've been part of our infinity group. For anybody, we're going to make that free now. The basic infinity that used to be $100 a month is going down to free. We, we lowered it to $10 last year and now down to, to, to free. If you want people to learn how to invest, I love getting young people into it and they actually learn the principles of money. That's actually really fun. I'm always doing them. I'm doing one tomorrow all day long, but we teach a workshop and then there's, they can come in and trade in the stock market with, with a fiduciary, like a professional every Wednesday. We just train people on how to be good investors and there's not a dollar to, to be had in it. They can just go do it. I spoke to some of your mastermind folks in the infinity group and mm-hmm. it's kind of cool guys. Like it's, it's, I'm not a big fan of the stock market. Sure. But the way they teach it is like more. It's like cash flow investing, but like investing in dividend type of stocks. So they teach you how to do that. It's great for like younger guys who need to save up some money to go buy a rental property and get started. Or some of you, you older guys just looking mm-hmm. for that hobby to do too. It's cash flow. We call it being a stock market landlord. Everybody forgot that the, the, the stock market used to be a place where you got paid to invest. Then it became, oh, the stock's going to go up. No. So if I gave Lane money and said, hey, open up a restaurant, I'd expect him to pay me something for it. I wouldn't wait 10 years and say, hey, if you ever sell that restaurant, I hope we make some money. That's stupid. So we cash flow it. There's only about 60 companies that give you good cash flow. And then we show you how to rent the stock out. So you could make a good 10, 12% a year pretty consistently out of the stock market, just picking those companies and, and, and renting them out, which is a fancy way of saying covered calls. It's actually fun. And uh, we do it because if, if younger people start doing that, they won't be afraid of it and they won't get taken advantage of by all these knuckleheads out there in their suits trying to take your money and put it in an account, mutual fund and rip you off. I shouldn't say rip you off. I always get in trouble. Somebody yells at me for saying that. Mutual <laughs> funds have really high fees. ETFs yeah. are really cheap. Take 30, just take 30% of all your gains, right? 70%. 70% is the <laughs> average of what their fee will end up taking away. of all the growth, you're 100% at risk. You get less than a third of the benefit. Once people realize that's how Wall Street makes its money. Yeah, if you guys want to get details of that, go to the andersonadvisors.com or shoot me an email, send me a link. Good stuff, Toby. Appreciate your time. Hey, it's always fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.